we're going to need that kind of defiant, you know, mass defiant approach in order to push back. It, it, we're going to need to bring back some of the tactics that were used in the civil rights era. It, the movement was unbending to the political establishment and that's how it won. Hey everybody, Blake here from Stuist Media in Munich, Germany, and this is episode one of the Resistance Companion Podcast. The Resistance is a web series that we shot in 2017 where we interviewed a bunch of leaders and protesters of the resistance movement during the inauguration of Trump. In the process of putting all that stuff together to make a web series, as an independent uh, production company, you find that you really have to cut these long, really interesting interviews into sound bites in order to kind of move the story along and make your points. But I always found that there was so much more, especially now four years later when I listen to them, there's just so much information that it was almost like prophecy. I don't want to go there, but it was a little prophetic. And I thought, why not put out the whole interview for everybody to hear and, and get the information that way as well. Uh, we have the power, we have the tools, and I have my partner in crime, my co-producer Randy M. Salo here to help me dig through it and kind of bring out some of that some of that context. So make sure to stick around after the interview. Randy and I are going to start breaking down some of the finer points and especially how what you said then applies to what we're going through today. So welcome, Randy. Hey, Blake. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Yeah, I mean, uh, like Blake said, um, there's so many hours of footage that we went through and we had to edit down. And there's so, there's so many tools, I think, in yeah. what they talk about that yeah. would be relevant to people these days. So it just felt bad to just sit on that info, mm -hmm. sit on the, the voices that are, you know, trying to, to push things forward. So exactly, yeah. this seemed like a, a good format to, yeah. to bring this stuff Let out. Let them speak a little bit. And uh, like we've talked about, the concept back then was even just to document what was happening and, and it felt right to put these out then as a podcast to let that document, that historical document of what happened four years ago now. Uh, yeah, and they could not have known um, yeah. what was going to come to pass. And I mean, they and a lot of them, like you said, they kind of nailed it and maybe it's even worse than they imagined. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that they were so. preparing for, right. it's they've gotten like three times as much things. Mm -hmm. So um, Yeah, I don't think anybody could have really predicted how quickly <laughs> things would... Progress seems like the wrong word. <laughs> Escalate. Yeah. Regress. <laughs> yeah. Who is the who's the first uh, person up uh, on so the interview? Episode one features uh, Shama Sawant. She's a council member in the city of Seattle and uh, one of the leaders of Socialist Alternative, which is uh, back then and has only in the last four years become a, a much larger voice in leftist politics, radical leftist politics, and uh, I mean she's been in the news recently during the George Floyd protests in Seattle and and everything that's happened there so uh she's she's a, a large figure and I'd I'd read about her in uh in different journals and things over the years and and especially she was one of the first politicians to get the 15 15 minimum wage in the city of Seattle or was one of the most vocal and so I knew she was going to be there and I I knew that it would be a a great interview only because also like right after the election, the thing that jumped out to me about all the protests I saw was socialist alternative signs everywhere you looked. So it was clear to me that they've achieved some kind of national reach. And so it seemed like a, a, an obvious person to talk to about movement building. Right? And how'd you manage to like get in touch with her and arrange a, a It was meeting? a long process. 
I mean, the whole, just getting all of these interviews for the film was a long process because I'm kind of a no one, especially being an expat, you know, coming from Germany. It was a lot of phone calls, uh, a lot of emails. Um, but eventually we, we were able to organize it uh, before she was going to give a speech uh, at this place called Alma's, Alma's Temple. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like a hotel, but also like a banquet hall uh, right in the middle of downtown D.C. where like the day before we were, there was a limo on fire. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, so it was cool. It's like I always find a lot of the locations where we did them kind of interesting because this place was like a really big, opulent, old, very old, classic looking ballroom hall that all these like radical leftists were packing into for a, for a rally. So it was, it was interesting. And, and she was very gracious with her time and, and really engaged with us and took the whole thing seriously, which was which was nice. And yeah, she has a lot of really, you could tell she's very passionate, which is the great, the great part. So I hope you guys enjoy. Again, uh, we're here with Shama Sawant from Socialist Alternative and council person in Seattle. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for making time for us. Um, first, we just wanted to get a little background on you for those that don't know um, about your election and a little bit more about Socialist Alternative. Thanks for having me. My name is Shama Sawant, as you said, and I'm a council member in the city of Seattle. I'm also a socialist. I'm a, social, a member of Socialist Alternative, which is a nationwide organization of uh, social and economic justice activists. And you mentioned our, our election. We, uh, you know, we, we are an activist organization, so we have been part of the anti-war movement, the movement for women's rights, uh, and also, uh, we've organized movements against sexual violence and uh, helped build the struggle for marriage equality. And also, uh, we, in 2013, uh, and, and, and before, in 2011, we were uh, also uh, played a leading role in the Occupy movement. And I personally was very much involved in the Occupy movement in Seattle. And in 2013, we ran a campaign for city council, but me as a candidate, we meaning Socialist Alternative, ran a campaign uh, for city council. And we uh, uh, campaigned on a $15 minimum wage for all workers in the city of Seattle, which we helped achieve six months after I was elected, within six months after I was elected. And uh, we ran the kind of campaign that uh, most people haven't seen before, which is, uh, a truly grassroots initiative, taking no money, not a penny, from big business, and pledging that uh, if I was elected, I would uh, keep only the average worker's wage out of my city council salary and donate the rest, which is, uh, you know, my, my salary is pretty, the city council pays me $122,000. I keep, I take home only $40,000 and donate the rest to a solidarity fund, which is used to help social justice movements, like the movement in Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline, for example. And uh, I mean, as far as my background goes, I was born and raised in India, and I grew up uh, myself, neither rich nor poor, but with a a very, uh, I have a stinging memory of the deep divide between the vast numbers of poor people and uh, uh, the few extremely wealthy people, and uh, always being convinced right from my very childhood that uh, this this reality of extreme poverty and misery, the caste system, uh, 
sexual violence, all the social problems we face in our in our uh, around us, are not inevitable to humanity, but are a product of the system. And of course, I didn't know what it was at that time, but I was logically convinced that had to that had to be true. Which means that uh, for me, that was that was that logic was also was a hopeful logic because then I know that uh, something can be changed. It's not inevitable. And then when I came to the United States as um, you know, in, in my twenties, and and I, uh, you know, I had this feeling in my in my mind that, uh, well, the United States is the richest country in the world. So you you know, at least there, maybe there won't be homelessness and poverty and so on. So you know, obviously, I come here and it's completely different. You do have poverty, and it's actually obviously in magnitude not comparable to what you see in countries like India, the neo-colonial countries, which which face many other barriers to solving those problems, but it's more stark because there is so much wealth in our society in America and there is no reason why people should be poor. There is no reason why we should not have fully funded social services, fully funded mass transit. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, that really led me to concluding that th this must be a problem of capitalism itself and that in order to solve these problems, uh, humanity will have to go towards a different system altogether, and that's in in my mind is socialism, which is basically an economy where the uh, you know the largest corporations that control society right now are taken into democratic public ownership, so that we the 99 percent you know ordinary working people can democratically decide how we can uh, put all the immense resources that we have in the world to use not to generate yet more private profit but to, and, and to satisfy insatiable greed, but to actually solve uh, the world's social and economic problems and to deliver a decent standard of living. And so that's why I joined Socialist Alternative, but, in, but we, don't, we don't just stay with an abstraction within Socialist Alternative. We, we believe in being an integral part of movements around us, and that's why I mentioned all those examples. And that's how we ran the electoral campaign as well, as a truly working class representative of, of uh, the community, young people, and so on. And that's how we ran our campaign as well. You know, pe uh, young people, grassroots were in involved in that. And that's how we won our re-election campaign as well in 2015. And since then, we've also made major breakthroughs for tenant rights in Seattle. Uh, to that point, talking about so social alternative is very uh, seems very unique in sort of the, the independent left, as I like to call it, in that a lot of people on the left seem to still uh, hold true to this idea that you can kind of uh, reform the Democratic Party in some way to move progressive ideals, where you guys kind of take a different uh, approach to that, that question. I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on your position and Socialist Alternative's position as far as uh, reforming within a democratic party? Thank you for asking that question. And I think that this is perhaps the paramount question on people's minds, especially those who are politically serious at this moment, because you know we're talking a day after Donald Trump was inaugurated president. And uh, on the one hand, you can see you know his, his agenda of racism and misogyny and anti-immigrant hysteria is not shared by the majority of America. It's not like America has suddenly gone right wing. Uh, his approval ratings are plummeting by the hour, actually. Uh, but, the, but on the other hand, it's not immediately clear to people, even though the majority of us do not agree with him, how do we stop him? So clearly the question is, what is 
what is uh, what is a serious kind of strat strategic approach we can use to actually defeat him, not just express our anger against him, but how do we actually defeat him? And so first of all, uh, I think what's happened so far shows uh, how critical it is going to be to have uh, a, a real sort of movement from below. So for example, the day after elections, when the Democratic Party actually was in a state of shock after what had happened, Socialist Alternative was the only activist organization, political organization, that called for protests. Right after the election results were, were announced, we immediately called for rallies and protest marches in many different cities, including Seattle. And the day after elections, we had collectively mobilized 50,000 people out on the streets. And many of them were young people who are looking for a way to fight back, not only against Trump, but they understand that Trump uh, is, is, is absolutely vile. He is, he is a liar and a con man. But, but they also, to go further, understand that he is not an isolated phenomenon. He is a particularly deplorable expression of, the, of, a, of a very rotten system itself. And so how do we get out of this situation? I think uh, one, one point I would make uh, emphatically is at this moment, the only thing that can beat back against Trump will not be just protesting, it will certainly not just be an electoral strategy. It, it, it has to be, uh, a move, first of all, a mass movement-based approach, but a mass movement that goes towards the ideas of mass nonviolent civil disobedience. We, we're going to need that kind of defiant, you know, mass defiant approach in order to push back. It, it, we're going to need to bring back some of the tactics that were used in the civil rights era where a, the movement was unbending to the political establishment, and that's how it won. Yeah, real, real confrontational. And you know, often people, because of the role that the corporate media has played, uh, confrontation is is equated with violence. I would say that the that the that the in, inspiring aspect of the civil rights struggle, the the struggle for abortion rights, and so on, has was that it was a nonviolent resistance. But as you said, it was a it was a real confrontation, not just in form, but in an understanding that right. this requires con confronting the ruling class. This requires a defiant resistance against the ruling elite. Otherwise, we are not going to win. So that I think. It, that aspect of what is urgently necessary connects very much with your question about, you know, what, how should we orient towards the Democratic Party? Because, you know, um, we, first of all, we have to recognize, those of us who are on the left, uh, we have to recognize that for a lot of people, you know, young people, millennials who are getting politicized, are getting radicalized, want to move into action, the, the question of the Democratic Party is not immediately clear. On the one hand, there is a lot of anger bubbling over about uh, why the Sanders campaign wasn't given the nomination of the Democratic Party, the role played by the agenda of billionaires within the Clinton-esque you know, aspect of the Democratic Party and so on. Uh, but it's not immediately clear to people what else then, you know, if, if we don't work with the Democrats, what else? So we should recognize and be friendly towards the people who are trying to, 
take the Democratic Party in a different direction by working from within. I don't agree with that approach because I don't see that uh, from everything in the past, my experience shows that it's not going to work. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge that many people are going to try it out. So what I would urge as a member of Socialist Alternative, as a, as a socialist and a, as an activist, is that first of all, can we agree that we are going to need defiant, nonviolent civil disobedience? And that is not going to come about unless we have massive unity in action. Uh, and, and you build using the social power from below. So I think, for example, just concretely speaking, if we want to push back against the attacks on the Affordable Care Act and go beyond, even beyond that and win Medicare for all, how are we going to win it? If we all agree, regardless of our differences on strategy relating to the Democratic Party, if we all agree that we want to fight back and win against the attacks on the ACA and win Medicare for all, it's going to need a massive movement of the 99%. So can we build movements on the issues that we agree on and build it in such a way that the tactics of the movement actually give you successful results? Not just ask for it or work to the Democratic Party, but build a larger force that includes progressive Democrats, Sanders supporters, socialists, Greens, everyone together, young people. Can we do that? We have the same goal, but we, but it's, it's very, uh, we need to be very explicitly clear what that goal is. I mean, my goal is to build, uh, to actually win uh, victories by building movements around concrete but re defiant demands, like $15 an hour for all workers, Medicare for all, free higher education, you know, actually uh, 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 bringing some sort of police accountability, you know, putting an end to the mass incarceration state. These are concrete demands that we can build defiant movements around. Uh, the question is, where does the Democratic Party fit into this? I think that going forward, it's inevitable that the Democratic Party will be put to the test in many ways. For example, uh, you know, all throughout Obama's uh, reign in the White House, even though he came with such incredible mandate from working people, from America, his approval ratings were very high, and the Democrats had a majority in the House. Uh, they, despite all of that, the Republicans were very successful in being completely unrelenting against Obama's agenda and not letting him push through any of his agenda. The question is now, uh, are the Democrats willing to be unrelenting in a similar way? And just again, concretely speaking, Donald Trump has promised that he will nominate a Supreme Court justice who will be a zealot, who will be an ideologue against ab abortion rights, and you know we're talking on a day that half a million women have marched throughout Washington D.C. and there have been sister marches around the world by defiant women saying, "No, you're not going to go after my rights." So in this context, in this political context, will we see the Democratic con congressional, you know, congressional Democrats really using their power there to relentlessly push back against that? And will they filibuster that nomination? They can do it. The question is, will they? And so that you know that that remains to be seen. I I have not seen the Democratic Party use this kind of combative approach mm -hmm. that needs to be used in order to beat back against Trump. And so the movement will will test those tactics out, and and will have to realize that ultimately uh, it's uh, going to be inevitable that the movement needs to build its own power. And building your own power from below, of course, means building, you know, defined resistance in disparate movements. You know, so Standing Rock was 
a movement of its own, which was uh, defiant. Uh, the movement for 15 has been a defiant movement. But the point is that, that those, those just having movements here and there is not going to be enough to de defeat Trump. We will need a sustained period of resistance. And that is only possible if movements have a political organization, a political backbone that they can, that, that they can rely on. And the, the question in people's minds will be, will the Democratic Party provide that backbone? I don't see it providing. And so I think the movement will have to think through that. And I, I'm quite convinced that we, need, we will need an independent party of the 99% to make that happen. And, and uh, that, that question will be tested now. And that was basically my next question is that I similarly see is that uh, I agree that we have to have some kind of unity party in order to pursue those those demands outside of the Democrats, um, how do you see that moving forward? Because there is such, I don't want to call it divide, I think there is unity at least in, in theory and in goals, but there seems to be unwillingness to, to really come together in something that looks like a, a radical party, a third party. How do you see that moving forward, or what are the, the kind of strategies that the social alternative at least is? is right, I mean, I think among ordinary working people, among regular people who consider themselves Democratic Party members. I, I, and so I'm, I'm making a very clear distinction between them uh, and, like, say, them, the ranks of the Democratic Party, so to say, uh, and distinct from the establishment leaders of the Democratic the Party, the, yeah. like Nancy Pelosi, who right. said, well, you know, she, she Nancy Pelosi thinks that uh, even after everything that's happened, um, I w you know, one would think that the election of Trump would have been a massive reality check for the Democratic Party, and it may be. Uh, but to quote Nancy Pelosi, uh, what she said was, um, "Well, you know, this just this is just the normal course." I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Uh, this is just a normal course of events. You know, Republicans run win the White House, and then Democrats win the White House, and then Republicans win the White House. So. Uh, if, I, if I'm to take her at face value, what she's saying, and this is the line of the establishment Democrats, that uh, they don't need to do anything, much of anything, you know, that people are going to be so horrified by Trump that they will come back to us in the midterm elections, and, that, and the cycle continues. I, I, I would urge our movement to ask uh, very clear questions about this, because is that what we're willing to settle for? a party that is just willing to wait it out, mm -hmm. have all kinds of horrors perpetrated on ordinary people, on immigrants, on Muslims, and all the communities that Trump has promised to go after, just so that when you run in the midterm elections, you can say, well, we were not as horrible as that, so you should elect us. Uh, where, where is the commitment of the Democratic Party to build movements from below, to use their positions to empower uh, their social base. And if you contrast that to the approach that's been used by socialist alternative, I mean, granted, it's a small way, but it's a microcosm of what could be possible. In Seattle, when we ran our campaign, uh, we were very clear that we are, we are based in social movements and that our loyalties are undivided, which is why we took no corporate money and will, never will. We, we believe it's, it's not only a question of principle, which it absolutely is, but it's also a question of how, in a practical sense, politics pl plays out. If you get beholden to big business, 
then that's whose interests you're going to represent because their interests are weighed primarily right now in the status quo of politics. We need to change that status quo if you want to address inequality, if you want to address housing affordability, if you want to bring healthcare for all and so on. And the only way of appending that status quo is to not accept the, the, the formulas that are presented in politics as usual, you know, to refuse to accept business as usual. So uh, the question is, will the Democratic Party morph itself into that kind of party which will take no money from big business and undividedly un represent the interests of working people? I don't see it happening. I mean, you know, and, and I know why people are still grappling with that question because, uh, and it's understandable, because in people's minds, starting and launching a new political organization seems uh, just too much. I mean, it's, it seems, yeah, see, it seems too daunting. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. It seems too daunting. It, it doesn't seem possible. But in reality, if you look at concrete examples, uh, in many cases, when major social reforms were achieved under capitalism, it has been because of a couple of reasons. One is uh, movements were led by socialists who were very clear about the nature of the fight that you need to engage in, that it is a balance of, it's a question of power, you know, it's a balance of forces. So it's a question of building power, not negotiating. But also, if you look at uh, the story of how Canada wanted single-payer healthcare, it's a, it's a very useful guide. They wanted because they had a third party, which never made it to power in the central government, but it won power in, in a province, Saskatchewan province, where after they came to power, they brought about single-payer healthcare, a, a form of single-payer healthcare, a form of Medicare for all. And that system was so popular that all of Canada clamored for it. And the ruling parties ended up delivering single-payer healthcare because they were so afraid that this third party, this left-leaning labor movement-based party would gain power. So even if people's calculations are based in, well, I want to create pressure on the Democrats, you can't create pressure on the Democrats if there's never any uh, any question of threat. Threat. of a threat of yeah how, how I mean I would I would ask um, people to look back on the campaign trail when Sanders and Clinton were running in the primaries. Uh, Clinton gave a little bit of lip service towards fifteen dollars an hour, if, though she never came out and said she supported fifteen for all. But once Sanders was out of the race in the general election, she never once said anything about social change-based policies that people were looking for. Uh, you know, it was mostly, well, I'm not Trump, and so elect me. But that strategy didn't work because a lot of people didn't vote at all. And so I think that uh, for us, the question is not so much, well, uh, you know, will the Democratic do, Party do this or that? But the question for the movement is, are we willing to fight together in unity among the 99% around the specific uh, you know, attacks that Trump will be, uh, will, will be doing. And also, uh, can, we, uh, can we establish movements around more fighting demands, like not just being on the defensive, but being on the offensive? Like, what will it take to have a $15 minimum wage for all workers in the United States? That's a concrete question. And through the experience of building movements for that, I think a lot of clarity will be gained about who's on your side and who's not. Sort of on that same token, I'm really curious about how the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, 
was able to help Social Alternative at some level? Was it, did you notice a kind of rise in interest in your party? And uh, if you could just talk a little bit about what hap what the 2016 campaign meant as far as uh, membership or also where you're seeing kind of interest, where you guys are seeing uh, a demographic that you could you could go after to start building the ranks in that way? Yeah, that's a very important question. I, I would, uh, before answering what happened in the Sanders campaign, I would like to sort of step back and just look at what's happening right now overall. I think that uh, compared to the 90s and the 2000s, the, we are in a completely different era. You know, remember in the 1990s, you know, Francis Fukuyama, you know, famously or by now infamously said, you know, he declared the end of history, that capitalism was here to stay. This was the only system possible for humanity, and this was going to be the glorious system that was going to deliver all the social good that people were looking for. And look where we are. You know, we are uh, in the aftermath of uh, the most uh, devastating economic crisis since the Great Depression. And for most people, the crisis hasn't ended in, in a real way. And the price of that crisis has been brutally extracted from working people. It's, you see this especially in Europe, but also in the US in, in the form of the massive losses of middle class jobs. And many of those jobs that are coming back are low wage jobs. So two thirds of the jobs that are being created now are low wage jobs. But what does that mean in a generational sense? Millennials are those who are making low wages. So. So imagine all these millennials who you know, did everything right, went to college, got a college degree. Now they're saddled with ten, tens of thousands of dollars in student debt and making, I don't know, $12, maybe $15 an hour. These are low wage jobs. And with no hope of really achieving that piece of the American dream that has been promised. So for, there's, a, there's a real break between the previous era and this era where the new generations are seriously questioning the system around them. And, it's, there is, and that, that, is, that is leading to an ideological shift as well. Obviously, I don't, I don't claim that most American millennials would know exactly what I mean by socialism. But the, but the point is that the tide is starting to shift. You know, it used to be in the Cold War era, you know, in our parents' generation, that uh, at the S word, socialism was the dirty word. There was a lot of you know, propaganda, uh, negative propaganda associated with it. But for young people, first of all, they ne didn't grow up in that Cold War era, so there is no background, sort of no, uh, you know, no shroud, you know, this, this word, yeah, this word, S word is not shrouded in all this evil that, that they were told, their parents' generations were told. But more, more substantively than, than, than that, the reason that they're changing their thinking is because the system around them is crumbling. They don't see it really being able to satisfy even their basic needs. And not to mention the question of climate change. You know, we just heard this week, for a third year in a row, temperatures have risen more, uh, more speedily than sci sci yeah, scientists even predicted a few years ago. And that same week, we heard this other, uh, you know, damning indictment of global capitalism, which is only eight people own as much wealth as the bottom half of the world's population. Eight people own the same wealth as three and a half billion people. This is a completely insane system. And so it's no surprise, it's no mystery at all that for young people, C word, capitalism is the dirty word. And they're looking for something different. So I would say, that 
in some ways quite independent of the specific election outcome that we are in, already there has been a resurgence in interest in socialism. And if you look at the the numbers of, you know, membership numbers of many socialist organizations, they're growing quite rapidly. And many of the people who are joining organizations uh, like Socialist Alternative are young people. They're millennials who are uh, who have who started by questioning the system and now are quite convinced that we really need to fight for a socialist society. And uh, what such Socialist Alternative did during the Sanders campaign was quite unique, actually. We uh, when when he was about when he, when he was getting ready to declare his candidacy, we and I personally, actually that was in Manhattan uh, in 2015 during the People's Climate March, where that was the last time half a million people gathered uh, at at one spot, you know, for you know to speak up against climate change. Uh, I urged him to run independent and not as a Democrat, and uh, the reason. Socialist alternative felt that he should run as an independent was because, you know, he was going to run on a genuinely working class uh, campaign. He was going to run for a uh, he was go he was calling for a political revolution against the billionaire class. And and the and the and the point we made was that you can't run to uh, for a political revolution against the billionaire class and run in a party that represents primarily the interests of the billionaire class. Mm -hmm. There's a there's an in built in contradiction. And uh, even though he, but this is where our, 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 our tactics come into play. Even though he didn't run as an independent, we didn't just stand on the sidelines. We recognized correctly, and this was important. This is important for activist organizations to, to, to have a year on the ground because it's very important to understand what large numbers of people are thinking or, or, or which direction they're ready to move. It was very clear that Sanders was going to mobilize millions of people, many of them young people who had never participated in politics ever before, because he was tapping into that mood of uh, anger that was starting to bubble over uh, about economic inequality, the threat of climate change, and just the, just the, the, the bristling feeling of injustice that young people feel uh, about uh, the fact that Wall Street takes, uh, you know, takes in these trillions of dollars, and you know, we are left to fend for crumbs. And uh, what we did was, rather than simply say, "Well, he didn't run as a Democrat. Now we are out of this," we uh, we launched what was called Movement for Bernie, mm -hmm. where we supported his campaign, but we did it with uh, with an eye not towards promoting the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm implicitly or explicitly. Instead, we engaged with the thousands of young people who were attracted to Bernie's campaign and made our case for why we need an independent party, why Bernie should run as an independent in the general election, and why ultimately we need uh, young people to join a socialist organization so that we fight towards socialism and not just settle for reforms as hard as it is to win reforms under capitalism. So that, that type of dialogue, a very serious political, theoretical dialogue, is what we engage in. And that does bring very serious-minded people to, uh, to socialist alternative. I mean, that's how I was attracted to socialist alternative, because it's a, it's a very thoughtful and yet very engaged approach, which is exactly what we need. We need that to be the basis so that we can build this kind of nonviolent civil disobedience that we're talking about. Uh, getting back to kind of the unity idea, the idea of a unity party, would 
just throw it out there, would Social Alternative be open to merging with different parties uh, with that also are socialists of so the Party for Freedom and Liberalization, uh, or Socialism and Liberalization, excuse me, or even a progressive party that doesn't outwardly call themselves socialists, would there be potential for some kind of merger or bringing those parties together into a bigger party? Is that something that you guys talk about, or is that something that that is part of that strategy going forward? I think that when when we talk about a new party for the 99%, it necessarily has to have a mass character. Otherwise, we are not going to be able to um, you know, build any significant resistance against the corporate-dominated parties. But the, but the approach we would use would, would not be for us to recommend that all organizations now dissolve their, their, their particular identities, political identities, and let's all just become one organization. Rather, what we would call for is a party where organizations like Socialist Alternative could be part of that organization, but at the same time argue for our interests, as, argue for our ideas as well. So um, that part, but, 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 but on the basis that there is a certain agreement on some fundamental issues. So I would say, some of those fundamental issues would be this party needs to serve working people, not big business, which means that the candidates that run through this party cannot take money from big business. That's, that, you know, that's an example of a point of agreement uh, within this party, even though there will be separate organizations within, within that party. Uh, the question of democratic structures within the party is very important. I mean, if you look at the Democratic Party, for example, you know, when people say, well, you know, we still need to work in the Democratic Party, one question I often ask them is, when was the last time you were invited to a meeting where you got a vote on policies and which candidate should run for office? There is no such thing in the Democratic Party. So a new party for the 99% needs and will need to have democratic structures where rank and file membership have a real say in the party's politics, in the party's program, and who runs for office on the party's banner without those genuinely democratic structures, which will involve discussion, debate, voting, all of that. Without that, it, it, it won't really serve the purpose of representing working people. And so uh, what, what, I would imagine, what, I would, what I would think would be the way to go would be to have a clear agreement on certain fundamental principles while at the same time being very clear about our differences and pushing for radical reform using those electoral positions. So, you know, so another, another fundamental point of agreement, I would say, would be to base the party in social movements, not be uh, some sort of, elect, in, not to be some sort of electoral abstraction like the Democratic Party, which simply runs candidates, but is not really tied to any social power. You know, the, the purpose of this party should be to build the power of working people and young people. And, and in, order, in order to achieve that, there has to be an agreement on fundamental principles. But I think it, it is absolutely necessary that organizations like Socialist Alternative uh, be free to argue for our politics in an honest way within this party, because uh, the points of, uh, the points of debate that still exist between socialist organizations or between progressive organizations in general, these are important points. And I don't believe 
that we would serve the interests of the working class by just simply pretending that those differences don't exist. But instead, what I, would, what I would want to see is that this party empower working people, politicize them, and enable ordinary people to make up their minds about what strategies make sense going forward. Should we fight for socialism at all, or should we fight for just reforms? And uh, what will actually uh, help us uh, stop climate change? What will actually allow us to end poverty? I mean, these questions need to be debated. And that kind of debate can only happen if organizations are open about their differences and yet at the same time are, uh, are bringing their forces together to fight back against the corporate domination of politics. Thank you so much. For yeah, thanks, thanks for the great questions. Yeah, all right. Um, that was um, that was a that was a great interview, Blake. Um, and one of Thank the things you. that I just like that strikes me so much is that you know four years later, um, she has really been in the thick of things in yeah. Seattle. Um, General um, Attorney General William Barr has just um, named Seattle among three other cities, I guess, Portland and New York City right. as anarchists, anarchist states, anarchist states, or anarchist oh, sorry, cities. Anarchist cities. I don't think he's gone as far as Trump's the one that's like blasting Democratic governors, I guess. Barr's just keeping it to mayors and cities. Yeah, and, and they also like created this like autonomous zone. Um right. Chaz, the Chaz. And I mean I think a lot of like what some a lot of the things that she talked about, especially when she was talking about like Unity Party and mm-hmm. stuff like that, um it, it kind of reminded me of this thing. Like you have this sort yeah. of autonomous zone where, you know, there's like no authority, right? Yeah, right. Um well, it's like I think it's more like being free from because she made it very clear too is that some of the guiding principles have to be no corporate money. So it's more this notion of being free of the influence that you know people who don't have the workers or the people's interest at heart. Some organization that's free of that, I think, is exactly yeah you're exactly right. Is that's kind of the the internalization of everybody wanting to be free is I think what happened with this autonomous zone in Seattle was there was enough people together and they're just like, you know what? There's more of us than them. Let's just take this fucking thing. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, it's a shame. Cause I feel like that was the energy that you felt at the inauguration protest too. There was just this time of so many people coming together at one moment. You felt like maybe this is the thing that's going to turn that corner and I guess that's the the other side of the token is then four years later, you know, Kshama is still struggling to push forward these initiatives and these kind of ideas. Yeah. And I mean, we all know what happened in the last uh, Democratic primary. So you have to also wonder, like, so what's the next step? We put all our eggs in the Sanders basket again, you know, and now what's the next thing? I mean, obviously, we got to get rid of Trump. But. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I mean, one of the things that I, like, thought about was, like, she made so many uh, interesting points about, like, the fight for 15, mm-hmm. like, economic justice, mm-hmm. um, you know, racism, and, and certainly that has has become, uh, you know, the protest which she was involved with in yeah. Seattle. Yeah. But it, it's, it's sometimes, you know, you feel like, you, like, you wake up in the morning and you kind of have, like, this feeling of despair because... Mm-hmm even though she's talking about like concrete like you know achievable goals yeah, yeah. that wouldn't you know it's not not impossible. pie in the sky it's exactly. not a utopia we're just asked like what was the quote i got from her a decent standard of living yeah <laughs> that's I, all that <laughs> a decent standard of living for everybody 
and you know, she, you know, she's pointing these things out, and I've and the, the 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 despair I'm talking about is that you wake up and you feel like we can't even try to go for those things yeah. because there's this roadblock in yeah. the way. It's there's this. The, 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 everybody has to get together to basically just stop. Yeah. Uh, you know the 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 it's administration. Like <laughs> That's just 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 destroying everything, and you yeah. can't really focus. You know, you yeah. can't get people powered up about the fight for fifteen. Right. You can't keep people focused on Black Lives Matter yeah. at the moment because or climate change, apparently, yeah, yeah. or yeah. climate change, yeah. because it's 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 like one thing after the other, mm-hmm. and it it makes it so difficult to fight for these things that would make people's lives right. better, that would solve a lot of the crises that we're having. Yeah. But we can't even get to that point where we're trying to make those changes because we have this wrecking yeah. ball. Wrecking ball who's just been like magnified because of a pandemic now. Now he's like a giant wrecking ball that's like literally just like taking out the population. It's Yeah. Yeah, I mean I, that's what we were talking about before is there you know nobody could have predicted all the things 2020 would bring but getting back to one of the I think one of the main themes throughout the series and in our conversation was how do you what's the strategic move of working within the Democratic Party? And I think we come back to that, the last uh, primary, we all saw how that went down. That was very clearly like an elite power move to stop the momentum that Sanders was getting. But at the end of the day, we're still stuck in this like, you, exactly like you said, we can't even talk about $15 minimum federal minimum wage because yeah. we're still discussing if there should be like diversity training it, for federal contractors. Like that was the th- what he just sent an executive order to like any federal contractor that wants to have diversity training to like teach their employees about systemic racism and sexism in the workplace. If they do that, they don't get a federal contract anymore. I'm like, who the fuck is asking for that? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody's asking. Yeah. And it just makes it even clearer who he, his strategy is that he has to get all of the racists and all of the bigots out this time. And so he's just playing like that. To me, it was like we have a pandemic. We just over over two hundred thousand people. It's more than all the wars. Which he also like two days ago uh, at a at a rally s- said that it doesn't really affect anybody. Yeah. yeah. It's like what about the two hundred thousand yeah. people and that their have families? Died? This is like ripple effects over communities, and he's talking about diversity training as if like teaching people about racism is somehow racism towards white men. Yeah. Like if you read the presidential order it's just like i mean it's not much different than the like patriotic education exactly. um you know thing that he's saying. trying he to kick off push, he's not even attempting to like reach out to even like moderates he's just like double down on hardcore like white supremacists i don't and like at this point i don't know how anybody could try to talk their way out of that pinning him down there like especially all the books that came out this summer yeah. Like it's very clear that he has an animus towards anybody who's not rich and white and a dude. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I mean, um he also just said yesterday that um he like when people asked when the press asked him during his, you know, press conference mm-hmm. if 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 he would lose, if he would, you know, yeah. um make the, a peaceful transfer of power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he he would not say that he would make a peaceful transfer of, of power not. and in fact he said there's problems with the ballots, and if we would just get rid of the ballots, there would be no transfer. And I mean, yeah. that's um, that's the world we're living in. And yeah. I, you know, just thinking now, talking back about 
um, the interview um, that you had with uh, Shama, it 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 shows um, you know a lot of the things that she was talking about. Mm. Um, I, I I I recall that she mentioned. Um, and I, and I had forgot about this. Like just as he was elected, she was talking about the first justice uh, for the Supreme Court that he was going to yeah, bring right. in because yeah. the because they blocked yeah. Merrick Garland, mm. uh, and and now we're 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 picking a third now. Yeah, but this is I right. Mean, we are really far away f- four years later. I yeah. mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, how much has happened since then? Impeachment, um, scandal after scandal. Um, yeah. Well, World War Three with Iran. <laughs> that came and went, didn't it? <laughs> that came and went. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I would go back to to her analysis of how young people recognize that Trump is like a horrible human being, but it's the system that allowed such a piece of shit to become the leader of the free world. Absolutely. If we didn't have such a corrupt, like it's designed to reward corruption, we wouldn't have a Trump. There's this, you know, this wouldn't be. And I think that's a lot of the, at least in the mainstream media, a lot of that gets lost. It's so much outrage over everything he does. You lose the whole notion of like, well, it's been four years. We haven't even talked about how do we make sure this shit doesn't happen again? (laughs) Like, how do we protect ourselves from this guy, from people like him or movements like his, you know? Because it is, for better or worse, he's not wrong when he says that he started a movement. Trumpism is a thing now. And And I mean, the scary thing is um, that he, you know, with the election, like with, with, with basically delegitimizing the election, Mm -hmm. we may not have another chance to try to fix these problems because somehow it seems like he may have the power to just end elections or end, you know, this democratic process. And then... And then, you know, the fight for 15, climate change, racism, none of those things, you know, we still are like battling our way back up the hill from this moment. It's no, yeah, there's no argument that the Trump administration set back like all of the like incremental progress that had been made over maybe 20 years, like just he's trying to wipe it all away. He hasn't completely, but I mean, you see the things with the EPA, immigration, civil rights, he's trying to, like, all these things that I think when we were growing up, we took for granted as just part of the, yeah, part of the norm. Those things are going away, and I, yeah, I think it, it just shows how fragile the whole system is that it doesn't take much. I mean, to put a finer point on it, it's not like, it's not like eight years of Democratic rule, although he was blocked at every step, but it's not like that. They didn't make the case that this is the better route either, obviously, right? Like, yeah. If the Democrats had really tried this, going to her point again of creating some kind of mass movement, I mean, I think they failed again at that, obviously, because there's this whole, you know, everybody's like holding their nose to go pull it for Joe Biden because like what we're talking about, like you put us over a barrel again. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, Bernie did, you know, just like he did in 2016, yeah. you know, he... He's out there doing. He, his thing. he came out there and and yeah. did his thing for yeah. Biden because yeah. I mean I think he sees like hey we 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 gotta fix this yeah. one problem first right. and then we have a chance yeah. at the other thing. So yeah, while she was talking while during your interview, that's what I kept thinking. Like uh, you asked her specifically, how can um, socialist alternatives specifically right. work within the Democratic Party? Mm-hmm. And 
I think when you set out to make this um, th- this film or this series, you may not have foreseen no. that. God. I mean, at this point, everybody kind of has to work together just to yeah. you know stop this one thing. But yeah. um, what did you take away from what she had to say back then, and how can we apply it now? Yeah, I mean, back then, my main what I was mainly interested in was this very thing. I already kind of saw that the Republican Party was just going to dive far to the right, to the extreme right, now Trump, and that the Democrats were not going to try to reach out to the left, and they were going to try to grab these middle right people, which has come come to pass. And it so would have always left me with this, like, well, why? Like, I think uh, Glenn Greenwald has said it best, like, why do you keep going back to this sort of, like, toxic relationship? And I wanted to talk to her specifically about that because she seemed to be somebody that was You know, like the Democratic Socialists of America are willing to work within the Democratic Party where Socialist Alternative likes their autonomy. And like I think the way she described how they approached the Bernie Sanders campaign was a, a perfect example of that. They're not interested in like having being dictated to or talked down to by the Democratic Party. Yeah. But if you put up a candidate that they can get behind, they will mobilize, you know, they'll try they'll mobilize their people for you. Yeah. So to say. And that is how they could, the Democrats could have tried to put together some kind of coalition because like we've talked about forever Trump is not going to go away if it's like a 2% 3% you know margin of victory that Biden even gets it can't be like all the other elections it has to be like a we have to, yeah. it has to be a overwhelming yeah get the fuck out of here <laughs> otherwise yeah i mean he'll never he'll, he'll never won't leave. leave um i had a question because i i, I don't know if i if I grasped the concept, but it seemed interesting. She was sort of talking also about the candidates themselves. Mm-hmm. Like if she, if you would form like this, this third party, this unity party, uh, it would be made up of, it would need to be made up of individual um, organizations mm-hmm. um, who are all coming, uh, coming together around multiple like social issues. Right. Um, and then the way to select candidates would then not be to have just anybody become a candidate, mm. but one that the organization sort of n- nominate in a way. Yeah, yeah. I guess you would look at it more like, um, for all the comrades out there, it's kind of what she's describing is how like the internationals were set up, right? It's sort of these communists or socialists or anarchist groups from all over the world would come together and put together, put out delegates to speak on their behalf. And then, I mean, the international never got to a place of putting up candidates for anything, but it would work that way. It's like its own, I think the word she used was like a microcosm then of the left and the debates and all that stuff would happen within the party. And then you would present, okay, these are the people that we decided are going to best represent us in dealing with the, you know, the corporate class, so to say. Okay. And but like you said, it would work up from the bottom up, though. So you would have all of the ground, you know, the grassroots organizations putting forth their candidates, and then they could have a, I'm sure, some kind of rank choice uh, debate and back and forth to pick who those candidates would be. I would imagine it would be much more of a local kind of centric thing. I think, if anything, I've learned in the last four years is that the presidency is an office for the rich, like... Yeah, I mean, you see it now. Wall Street just kind of turned the money hose over to Biden this time right. because it seems more beneficial and 
in four years, if it seems more beneficial to switch it back to Mitt Romney or whoever it's going to yeah, <laughs> they'll just turn the hose back the other way. So I think, you know, it, this gets talked about too. I don't know if Shama gets into it so much, but that focusing, I know she does because she brought up the example. I thought I read this down too. This is a great example of how they got Medicare for all in Canada was yeah. they are able to, there's more of an opportunity for third parties to participate, especially in state and local elections. And that was that in Saskatchewan province, they were able to get this third party into power and they put into their program the Medicare for all. And it was such a success that other states, it's kind of like how medical marijuana blew up, you know, states are like, oh, shit, look at all the tax money. Right. We want that too. And so I think this is like, again, like you said, she presents like concrete strategic ways of how you get this shit done. Right. And another point she makes about like the Democrats is like, when was the last time the average Democratic voter was even asked like beforehand, like, who do you even want to put up Yeah. for, you know, Senate? Who do you, who do you think would be good, a good uh, congressman? doesn't work like that. What I think she was getting at too was that that's kind of how they felt about Bernie. Yeah. When they were pushing him to run yeah, or, you know, run as right. an independent and stuff. And how I think they saw him, especially because one of her criteria is that you can't take corporate yeah, money, government. right? And and Bernie wasn't doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you certainly in, tw- in 2018 also saw a rise in um, people like AOC right. uh, going in this direction and, yeah. the, and the whole squad and, 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 and seeing like a movement of more progressive people heading into the house and stuff like that. Um, so certainly what she said, I think has, has started to, to happen. Right. And these are the people she was talking about that you have to be friendly with, that they're going to always going to be people thinking they trying to reform the democratic party from inside. She doesn't want to put her energy there, which I think is understandable. I think that bringing up AOC, I mean, it's not like she's being treated with a lot of, uh, camaraderie. Yeah. By the leaders of the, the DNC and the Democratic Party. So I think that's going to be, uh, you know, depending on how this election shakes out in November, how the, like, progressive wing, the progressive caucus uh, in Congress, where do you where do you go from here? I think, you know, how do you, how do you leverage what, what we have won into something more? Only because, like I've said, the thing that kind of finally turned me to, like, okay, I guess I got to vote for Biden was... Like you said, if we don't move, do something now to change this, like the window for doing anything on climate change becomes, it, then you're just asking for like a real hard, a real nasty moment, you know, and and I'd rather have to like kind of keep knocking against Biden than like whatever the fuck could happen in another Trump administration, like God only knows. Yeah. I mean, we, we just lost... Um, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm. and now we're up, as we mentioned before, up oh. for a third, up for a third, um, you know, um, SCOTUS appointment from um, from Trump. And I mean, I think one of the things they fear is if if a you know f- another far right judge goes into that seat, they'll get rid of yeah. of of. Well, um, we should give the Republicans. That was the strategy. I mean, they followed through with the strategy, and they are gonna like they have. Was he in the first year he appointed like 147 federal judges? Yep. Because they blocked all of Obama's judges for like two years or something, you know? I mean, this was a strategy and they they did it. I mean, you yep. have to at least point that out. They this was not random. This was all 
put into motion that this was how it's going to be because I think this is what you're about to say. <laughs> Sorry, cut yeah, you off yeah. there. But uh, if you control the judges, you control the law. Right. And we're, we're, we're going to, you know, we're potentially going to lose a lot of the protections yeah. that already exist. Yeah. I mean, certainly Affordable Care Act will probably be up. Yeah. Roe versus Wade. Yeah. These things that Kashama... Well, if he wins again, that's coming up. Yeah. And these are the things that she was already talking about mm-hmm. with the fear of him appointing, you know, a far-right yeah. justice. And now there's going to be three. It will be a yeah. majority. And, I mean, there are real things at stake that yeah. for decades yeah. and lifetimes, yeah. things will change. And then... Irreversible, yeah. And, and as we fight all of these, um, all of these, I would say, smaller fights, we're mm-hmm. neglecting the bigger fight mm-hmm. against uh, climate change, mm-hmm. which... Um, it seems like if we lose that, then game over, yeah. right? Then all these other issues are, yeah. <laughs> I had to say they fall behind, but it feels like exis- existing is the bigger, the bigger uh, issue. Yeah, I mean, the, I think we have to at this point assume that they're going to appoint the third judge, and it makes it even more critical that like local elections and the Senate and the House are able to flip. Because if we don't... I think you said this to me the other day, like, if you can imagine the Supreme Court is going to be conservative, like, we should just, that's going to happen. I mean, Romney, I don't think they have an, another Republican that's going to block. Right. He was the the last one Fucking who... Romney. I hate when they try to weasel out of just making a purely political move to, like, well, you know, in the precedent and constitution, like, show me in the constitution any, yeah. like, fuck yourself, Romney, like, right. you know what you're doing, just come on. <laughs> As far as I started, but so it's going to be a conservative court for probably the rest of our lives, right? So then the next question is, well, what do you do? You have we're supposed to have the three tier system, the three branch system. Can you imagine if we lose the presidency and both houses to these crazy, <laughs> this crazy Trump party? Like, yeah. But I mean, if 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 the Supreme Court goes and we take the presidency, but we right. still but lose we still the lose, Senate, yeah, then we're kind of still in. The, then yeah. any anything that this the next president Biden's tries to four year lame duck, like yeah. So <laughs> anything he tries to do, you know, would be blocked um, by the Senate. Yeah. Or if we win the Senate and we win the presidency, yeah. but they they get their third justice. Yeah. Then anything that they try to enact we'll go to court will eventually go to court and yeah. up to the Supreme Court, and then yeah. they'll rule it out, and yeah. then we'll never have climate change yeah. uh, legislation and stuff like that. So, I mean, we're—I don't want to say we're kind of screwed either way at this point, but well, and we've like um, backed ourselves into this corner of making the executive this like dictator because only—I mean, it seems like in that scenario, then all you can do is just sign executive orders that are going to be challenged in court, and then you kind of like what Trump is doing. Too, but I mean, Obama did the same because, like, the parliamentary system, or you know, the, that system was supposed to be the the democratic part of the whole system, right? Yep. And that's obviously failing. Like, there is no, nothing gets done. All they pass is tax breaks for rich people and massive budgets for the Pentagon. That's like all they do. Yeah, it seems like there's nothing else that's happened. I can remember. Okay, uh, Obamacare. And then, and then what? Nothing. Like, or no, that's not true because they can like throw trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars at banks and all these other things, and it just makes you feel like, well, I mean, I guess that 
circles back to what she's saying is even if the Democrats win, okay, maybe we get climate change. I guess that's the main argument, right? At least we get climate change and then we can start hacking away at all these other points, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I just feel like there's this urgency now of like enough is enough. We can't keep going down this route, down this road. So the first for the so the first step is vote however you safely can. Yes. Given the pandemic course. and um given where you are and yeah. stuff I like mean, that. This I mean is, this is another thing I always hate is it's always like, oh, this is the most consequential <laughs> vote in your lifetime, yeah. which I've had at least three or four of those in my lifetime. So. Yep. But I feel like this one is no bullshit. Like, we have to have the numbers or else he's going to... Otherwise, he'll refute... He'll refute um, the numbers yeah. and it'll go to court and then he'll stay and then... Yep. Who, yeah. Who, nobody has nobody has a clue what happens after that, like, right. at that point. Then if he thinks he's going to lose, he'll resign. Pence yeah. will become president. Right. He'll pardon him. Pardon him yeah. Which there's is been, weird. If he already lost, how can Pence become? <laughs> but, anyway. I mean, if that happens, I think that bring up to another point from her interview is the whole notion of creating a mass move. You need a mass movement that's willing to confront the elites and confront the status quo and not, which I don't think there's been a like real escalation up till now. If that happens, I think there'll be enough sort of maybe not social alternative members, but people that are on the fence or definitely progressive, that'll be like enough. Like this is too much. Yeah. And then hopefully there's some, but why, this is the thing that always bugs me. It's like, why do we have to, why do we have to come to this moment for that to happen? (laughs) Like the writing's been on the wall for, for a while. Why do we have to come to this place? Yeah. So, um, like let's put aside the despair for a moment and Mm -hmm. talk about what we can do. So what, what, what hope do you have? Like, well, that was also another theme that stood out in the interviews in general, but especially with hers was, um, how much young people are fueling this resurgence of leftist ideology, ideas and, and, and movements and this sort of radical, more militant approach to making demands and seeing them through. Um, and that gives me hope. I liked when she was doing kind of her introduction of herself, she spoke about growing up in India and seeing a lot of the misery that's caused because of their social systems and how it was clear to her there was a logical connection between the system and kind of human suffering and then coming to America and her being able to clearly see the same thing. Yeah. But I, I, it was something I needed to hear was that it also gave her hope in seeing that because it means it's not something that's like inherent or has to be this way. It can, it can change. And she talks a lot about that, that, you know, young people, younger generations, especially in America are seeing, don't have as much baggage maybe with sort of leftist politics that the previous generations have had. Yeah. And they're willing to hear it out. They want to know, like, what else can we do? This is obviously not working because yeah. it's like the longest recession, <laughs> you know. And Yeah, and I think for the for young people, it's, it's, you know, for the older people, it may not be as relevant if they have still a decent job, yeah. if they still have yeah. their home and stuff like that. But young people coming out of school, people who – bought into the notion that, you know, you have to go to college and get a degree to get a job, which is kind of the case, like, nobody will take you if you don't have a college degree right. sort of thing. But you put all your, you know, you you borrow all this money to go to college in America, only to get out and find that there are no jobs. So I feel like the young people 
are really aware of this mm-hmm. issue because yeah. they're getting out of school. Like, where are all those jobs that yeah. you promised that yeah. I was going to have to pay off the student loan right. that I had to take out right. in order to get an education, in order to get a job? You know, I mean, yeah. they see yeah. the hypocrisy in right. that yeah. setup. Yeah. And I think, yeah, young people especially see the hypocrisy in general, you know, yep. going again to the Supreme Court thing, like just the blatant hypocrisy that happens, I think, has turned them off from anything those people have to say, like maybe even irregardless of their economic theory, you know, Republicans and Democrats, yep. it's more just this like, these people are blatantly hypocritical and don't even have a problem lying to me. Yeah. Where... They're also just mean. Yeah. And I mean, we were, I thought, I think most of us in America were raised to be nice be to nice people. Be you know, golden rule. <laughs> yeah. um, and those of us that were raised particularly in the Christian way, yeah. you know, you're supposed to be, you know, Christianly to your yeah. neighbor humble. and humble yeah. and... And, and and the Republican Party, who should be the party that stands for all of these morals, mm-hmm. the, the, the party of morality, has become the opposite of that. And yeah. they're mean and vicious yeah. and cutthroat, and they so walk funny. around in city streets in militias with yeah. arms, yeah. you know, wanting to put people down because they the don't opposite. want your statue of a fallen... Southern general, yeah. um, you know, that, you know, kept wanted to keep people in slavery. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, is that really what we were taught when we grew up? Is that yeah. what Sunday school taught yeah, people, exactly right. you know? Yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah, we can go on and on about that one. <laughs> I saw a great meme the other day where Jesus is like helping the, helping the poor. And mm. he said, yeah, but can you help my leprous? And he said, yeah, but if I help you for free, that would be socialism. <laughs> Bazinga. <laughs> well, it, it just reminds me when I was a kid, there was always this, you know, the preacher would always go on and on about, you know, the thing that keeps people from finding the light is Christians who don't practice what they preach, you know, <laughs> setting the example. Yeah. And it just, yeah, I look at, you know, the quote unquote evangelicals nowadays yep. and what what's happening and it's just like, ah, yeah, exactly right. This is why, this is why everybody's leaving. <laughs> Because right. you guys are full of shit, man. Like, how am I supposed to believe any of it? The right to life party for yeah. only things that aren't Are, born yeah, yet. Aren't even, haven't but even everything taken a breath. <laughs> born that didn't work hard enough yeah. doesn't deserve Sorry. anything. Yeah. Healthcare is not a right. Yeah. Jobs aren't a right, apparently. Food, apparently, isn't a right. Yeah. Protection from pandemics is not a right, not apparently. A right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's another uh, issue with the Supreme Court is that, you know, Trump trying to get rid of the Affordable Care mm-hmm. Act during a during pandemic. A pandemic. It's not even like just an ideological thing. It's yeah. like literally Life trying to strip people away yeah. from health care in the middle of a pandemic, which he claims uh, is not really affecting that yeah. many people. The Christian thing to do. That's also, definitely what Jesus would have done. He also, I mean, it shows, I mean, he also said something recently at another rally, which shows you how, how he really just doesn't like yeah. get it. He's not aware uh, a, you know, a, um, somebody from the press asked him, like, in, when he held a rally in Nevada recently, if, you know, aren't you worried about, you know, holding a rally with all these people without any, you know, masks, without any distance restrictions mm. and stuff like that? And he said, no, 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 they put me on the stage far enough away from the people so I don't have to worry about that. Right. Which, which, Should, which shows you sign. exactly what's exactly. going on here. That's like Mega admitting that the pandemic is real. That the people that are there to see him will get it, yeah. but he's safe from he's it. He's safe, yeah. Because it's not so. about them. They're just they're just day players in the Donald Trump show. That's like yeah. he doesn't care about yeah. his own supporters yeah. and you can take it to the bank, you yeah. know. I mean, that's yeah. Well if 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 that's not enough, then like all of the 
Bob Woodward interviews, yeah. like he knew it was airborne. He knew it didn't just kill old people. He knew all that in fucking February. And yeah. he's still having rallies. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. Yeah. It's just blatantly obvious. And then it becomes like an issue when you're trying to talk to Trump supporters of like, so that doesn't, apparently is not a deal breaker that like he does not value you, like let alone people that aren't backing him, but he doesn't even value you. Yeah. And you're the one that put him in the White House. Right. And trying to put him, put yeah, him in another him time. Yeah. Because America's been so great the last four yeah, years. Exactly. We've just been kicking ass keep, the last four Keep years. America great Ugh. still. Ugh. Uh, yeah. On that note, get out and vote. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. And all you young people, save. Save, save us. us. <laughs> Who can we expect to hear from in the next episode? So n- coming up next, we were going to show, uh, show, we were going to listen to the interview with Maria Swart, who is uh, the national chair of Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, so keeping on the socialist theme. <laughs> um, but she also has a lot of great, like, concrete... That's the other thing we tried to get out a lot in these interviews was sort of like, I don't want to hear your theories. What are, like, the concrete things that we can do, people can do in their daily kind of lives? To, and local And local, lives, especially, yeah. Uh, to combat all of all of the shit that, <laughs> that we know that he's going to do and that, that they're going to do. And so she's, she's a great interview, too. Um, and that will be coming up on episode two. Looking forward to discussing it with you, Blake. Yeah, same here, man. See you then. The Resistance Companion Podcast is a Stuus Media podcast and is recorded in Munich, Germany. This podcast is produced by myself and Randy M. Salo. Executive producer is Janine Stengel-Lewis. The music for this podcast was composed by Kai Metzna. All of the interviews featured in this podcast were recorded on location in Washington, D.C., by Dennis Provost. The Resistance Companion Podcast is part of our larger multimedia project, including a web series which you can watch at vimeo.com slash Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep resisting. <laughs>